Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Seminary and Table Talk. We are your hosts, Jaron. And Thomas. And today we're going to be talking to you about the formula of Concord. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry, we'll get to explaining that shortly. Um, right now, we're going to lay a little bit of historical background. So as Lutheranism is becoming popular, the whole <laughs> Roman Empire ruled over by Emperor Charles V, um, in what is mostly today present-day Germany and Northern Italy, um, the empire was divided sharply in the north between Lutherans and the Catholics to the south. And so Charles V really wanted to reunify the Holy Roman Empire, his empire, under one religion. And so that's the backdrop for what we're going to go on today as we discuss the development of the formula of Concord and why this is so important. So Thomas, what, what, what's our first step here as we begin working towards the formula of Concord? Well, thank you, Jaron. So kind of as the first step you mentioned, when you talk about Charles V, and as you so rightly mentioned, he was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Turning that up just a bit. There we go. Um, yeah, so in an effort to maintain unity, he actually called several religious qualically. So a qualically is essentially um, religious discussion. So he tried, and he tried in years past, um, for example, in 1530, when the Augsburg Confession was being formed, it was both evangelicals, also known as Lutherans, as well as Roman Catholics working together to say, hey, where do we agree on? Um, but these qualities, these qualities that um, Charles V instituted actually failed. It was an effort for the Lutherans to say, um, for Charles to say, hey, you Lutherans, you can have some of these things. We just want to maintain unity. However, they were also political in nature. So two of the driving forces against Charles V uh, were Philip of Hesse, who was the Duke there, as well as Duke John Frederick. And to put this in the larger global historical context, the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, were making their way to Europe through areas like Hungary and Austria. Um, in one of these famed battles, the Hungarians actually drove back the Ottomans, and the Ottomans were a massive empire. So that was, that was Charles's main goal, was not only religious unity, but also have political unity in the event the Ottomans were to come to Europe. That failed. So as I mentioned, Philip the Hess and John Frederick of Saxony were both against Charles V. And they were part of a group called the Schmalkald League, or the Schmalkald League, which was named after, which was settled in the city of Schmalkald in Germany. And that's also um, another tidbit for the Book of Concord. That was actually the small call articles written by Martin Luther that were to be presented at this conference was actually one of his last wills and testament because he was very sick and didn't know if he would die. So to go back to the small call league and the small um, call league, this league of Protestant and German princes actually were in conflict with the Holy Roman Emperor. They were trying to find political power um, in order to maintain their sovereignty. So while their methods may be egregious, they're trying to maintain their land holdings. So this dive, this delved into a conflict known as Schmalk, the Schmalkaldic War. 
So what ended up happening was the Schmalkald League was defeated by the Roman Catholics. And this is where Charles V created um, a series of religious laws. He actually sat, um, when he captured Philip the Hest and John Frederick, John Frederick, he actually gave their land holdings to their relatives. Um, and he instituted a series of reforms, not really, but it was a season, um, I'm losing my words, I apologize, but it was also a way of imperial declaration of here's what you um, Lutherans must adhere to. And in Gunter Gossman and Scott Hendricks's Fortress Introduction to the Lutheran Confessions, um, they talk about one of these uh, periods, also known as an interim. So the first interim was known as the Augsburg Interim, and it was held in the city of Augsburg. So here, here are the declarations, these imperial declarations that Charles V gave to these German landings. Um, these, yeah, these German lands. And it was, so this Augsburg Interim was 26 articles. It included the, re the reinstating of the jurisdiction of Catholic bishops seven sacraments uh, in the Lutheran evangelical faith, there are two or three, depending on who you ask. Um, but the, and, but the, um, the Roman Catholic Church believed there are seven. So there was kind of the reimposition of that. Um, the medieval mass, which to kind of give it, give it over in a nutshell, it was very sacrificial in nature. Um, that Christ was re-sacrificed on the altar, that the bread and wine literally became the body and blood. Um, so as a reinstitution of that, um, festivals like Corpus Christi and All Saints that these Protestant areas had abolished, and lastly, traditional fasting regulations that you don't eat meat on Fridays. However, the well, this may be really bad for the evangelicals and the Lutherans at the time because those are real. The, th those terms are very synonymous. Um, there was actually some good parts that the Augsburg interim actually gave to the Lutherans. Your priest can still be married, and you can receive both kinds of communion: the bread and the cup. Back. Back in the medieval days, you only had the bread because out of fear of dropping the wine on the floor. Um, so it was this, so we're shifting from like a very medieval focus to more of an early modern focus in terms of the sacraments. Um, but this, this Augsburg interim, while very, um, very hurt the Lutherans. It very favored the Catholics. It very favored the Catholics, which was good. And then a year later, um, and kind of sidebarring here, Darren, you know I love, and you know how I love my sidebars. Um, at this time, the Catholic Church, the Western, the Roman Church, is also undergoing their form of Reformation. Um, it's, it was known at the Council of Trent, and give it a nutshell. The, the that was one of the first ecumenical councils kind of in the modern era um but it essentially solidified the bible it solidified the mass it solidified the understanding of justification and to put it in those terms justification for a roman catholic back then was um 
you, you um, humanity cooperates in the grace of God, um, as opposed to Lutheran, as opposed to Lutheran justification, where justification is this passivity that's that comes to us by the Holy Spirit. That is, we because we are justified. There's nothing we can do to be justified. We can't justify ourselves. It is God through Christ on the cross that does that justification. Um, and then there's this other set of interims um, known as the Leipzig interims. And this is actually kind of the starting point of the divisions between Lutherans. So the Leipzig in, um, interim um, late 1540s, 1548 to 1549, sometimes dates don't matter, but for this one, it does. Um, there is a thing called the Adiophoric controversy. Now I can't say that to save my life, but it's essentially looking at things that I, that are neither commanded by scripture nor forbidden by scripture. Um, to give an example of that, um, should priests be wearing vestments? Um, what are, and kind of the main question is, should we, should we have these practices that were previously abolished? So they were, so in, losing my words again, but adiaphora means indifferent things. Um, and this comes from an article that our professor gave us in church history, um, things that you could do or do not while still avoiding sin. So the big question with that is, does what I'm doing affect my salvation? And that's the whole purpose of the Adiaphora is indifferent towards salvation. So wearing vestments does not preclude anybody from being, from being saved. Um, so we had two camps. Um, and this is kind of where we see the divisions. We have Philip Melanchthon's camps, camp known as the Philippists. And their position was, in the, during, the, during his Leipzig interim, um, the concept of indifferent things, so they're neither commanded nor forbidden by Christ. Um, however, the opposite camp, known led by Matthias Flaccius, also, and he was the head of the Genesio Lutherans or the genuine Lutherans, he argued in times of persecution, one may not compromise. So, regardless of what's going on, one does not compromise. So in these cases, indifferent things are not indifferent. This is like a yes, we do this, or no, we do not do this. And these controversies um, would spill over into other realms of the Lutheran tradition. And that leads us on to the road to the Book of Concord. It, uh, Concord is agreement, but it's also right, same mind and same heart. Um, so to dive a little bit more into um, the formula of Concord, what's in it? Um, Darren, I think that's kind of, before I dive into the specifics, would you mind talking, what are some things we can find in the book and the formula of Concord? Yeah, so the formula of Concord is really interesting. It's basically a way for the Ganesio Lutherans and the Philippist party to come to agreement on what Lutheranism means. Um, so they would come to agreements on justification by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. Mm -hmm. um, they would come to agreements on free will 
And the fact that we cannot cooperate in our salvation and that we are passive to receive salvation from God, um, they believe that good works are important. They're not necessary for salvation, but they are um, fruits of salvation. So if salvation is a tree, it'll bear good fruit, which is good works, and thus good works are a sign of your faith. Um, they will also reach compromises on um, the forensic nature of justification, as well as the nature of the sacraments, specifically the Lord's Supper, as well as um, whether adiaphora um, should be addressed. And they do address adiaphora and say that these indifferent things, um, they are what they are. They're indifferent. So you do not have to follow them. But if you do do them, that's fine. No one, no one's upset about that. And so they really reach these agreements um, where at times they were opposed to each other. So I think this is a really awesome part of Lutheran history where you have two factions that come to an agreement mm -hmm. and form a binding um, formula of the formula of Concord that today exists in our Lutheran confessions. Mm -hmm. And they're actually, so the form of Concord is actually broken up into two parts. We have the epitome, which is like a short version of here are the things that we have agreed on and here are the things that we reject. But then we also have this solid declaration, which that uh, expands more on the epitome and it's like, these are the things that are distinctly Lutheran. Yeah. And so if you're out there today and you're not Lutheran or you haven't really encountered Lutheranism, honestly, the best way to understand Lutheranism is to read the formula of Concord, starting mm -hmm. with the epitome and then moving towards the solid declaration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, and as, and Jaren, as you mentioned, that, that forms our book of confessions. Um, and there, there's some interesting stuff in there. There's, and, and I will say this, in each of those articles, one of the main, and one of the main goals of the concordists, it ensured, they ensured that people's consciences would not be afflicted. Um, to give an example of that, in article 11, which is the, the article on election. So how do we know if we're saved? They say this in the pair, and I'm paraphrasing here, don't worry about it. Because one thing that um, people are concerned about is, oh my God, am I going to be saved? Am I going to heaven? Am I going to hell? The, the, the form of Concord gives an answer. But they also say, don't worry. Um, and if you would like to know what that answer is, uh, Formula of Concord, Article 11. Um, and I'm pretty sure there's also a Lutheran pastor who would like to talk more about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I think, um, but Jared, that was a really good summary of these controversies. And do we still see these kind of controversies today? Yeah, uh, we, we most certainly do. For example... Um, you might still see uh, the antinomian controversy of presenting itself mm -hmm. um, every now and then in Lutheran circles, where some people believe that um, good works are not required. 
um, in that um, they're not really needed. And this also ties into the majoristic controversy as well, which um, where some Lutherans mm -hmm. believe that good works are actually harmful mm -hmm. for salvation. Um, where, and then on the other side of that, you have people that say that good works are necessary for your salvation and that good works are required for you to be saved. Lutherans, the formula of Concord strikes a nice in between saying that good works are required not for salvation, but through obedience to God. Mm -hmm. Because we are saved by our faith. And then once we are saved, we are called to obey God. And that means producing good works. So mm -hmm. good works are kind of and kind of not required, definitely not required for salvation, but required mm -hmm. as fruit of salvation. Mm -hmm. And then um, not doing good works or embracing bad works would be frowned upon heavily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Jared just kind of goes to the age old question, when we do good works, who requires our good works? I think God, I think God requires our good works so that we can participate Mm -hmm. in the coming of Christ's kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, we are living in, as Christians, we are living in eternal life now, but that eternal life has not come into full being. It has not bloomed fully mm -hmm. at this time. And so we are constantly working, doing God's will here on earth, awaiting mm -hmm. that time when um, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Christ is Lord. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about the two, the two architects of the formula of Concord. Um, Jacobus Andre, uh, as well as Martin Chemnitz. These, these two men, along with two others, were the chief arch, um, which my handout does not have the names, but, they, but Martin Chemnitz and Jacobus Andre were actually the chief architects behind the formula of Concord. Um, to give a little biographical information of both gentlemen, um, Jacobus Andre was a son of a blacksmith in Wittenberg. Um, he attended the, attended the University of Tübingen, and then he became a professor there. He served as a Lutheran pastor. And this is interesting. I did, Jared, I'm not sure if you found this interesting as well, but he actually had ecumenical relations with the Orthodox Church. Yeah, um... A lot of people don't know this. This is very brushed over in Lutheran history, but when the Lutherans were developing their Book of Concord, you know, with the Augsburg Confession, and then as they were completing here the formula of Concord, they actually were in talks and dialogue with the patriarch, ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, um, who was de facto leader of the um, Eastern Orthodox Church at that time. And so they would send the formula of Concord in the Augsburg Confession, as well as other Lutheran writings to the ecumenical patriarch, trying to draw closer ties between Lutheranism and Eastern Orthodoxy, mm -hmm. which is interesting because back in the um, early 1000s, the church, uh, what was once the unified Church of Christ became divided into Eastern Orthodox um, Greek speakers and Western Catholic Latin speakers. And so it's interesting that the Lutheran church growing out of the Roman Catholic church decides that they want to form closer relations with the Eastern Orthodox church. Um, ultimately those attempts failed. There were some differences they couldn't reconcile, but I think this is a really awesome 
um, part of our Lutheran heritage that we often neglect, which is um, Lutheranism wanted to be an ecumenical movement from basically the beginning. Mm -hmm. You remember Martin Luther did not want to leave the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church more or less kicked him out. Mm -hmm. He did not leave willingly. And then here they're trying to more or less sew themselves onto the Eastern Orthodox fabric or, or at least be considered genuine um, a genuine Christian church by the Eastern Orthodox. And so th this is something that I'm very passionate about and I find it very interesting. Mm -hmm. And the nomination that Jerry and I are part of, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, is actually in conversation at the moment with the Orthodox Church. Uh, that process is, is, that process is called bilateral dialogue. So you have two parties that are working on what, do we, what can we agree on, what, do, what is still different. Um, and Jared, I was interested you brought up the church at Rome because even the Lutheran World Federation is doing that at the moment. Yeah. Um, and I think there is, there is a push among Lutherans to have some reconciliation with Rome. Yeah, there, interestingly, um, you will have small groups of Lutherans. In the Roman church, there are different rites. You will have the Latin rite, which is what most of us in the West experience. You will have the Byzantine rite which is mostly an Eastern Orthodox worship service, um, but they're still loyal to the papacy in Rome. And so there are numerous different rites depending on location and local tradition. Mm -hmm. And some Lutherans have actually said that they would like there to be a Lutheran rite in the Catholic Church where we are um, united with the Catholic Church, but keep some of our Lutheran traditions, which that's interesting. I, I don't see that happening anytime soon, but it's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, however, our church, the ELCA, has borne a lot of fruit with their ecumenical endeavors. We um, have been able to reach uh, agreements where we're in full communion, meaning we can share communion with each other and also share pastors with each other with different churches, such as the Episcopal Church in the United States, the United Methodist Church, the United Church of Christ, the Moravian Church, um, the disciples of Christ among others. And I think that is really something positive. And currently at the moment, we are also working on having conversations with historically black church, um, such as the American uh, African-American Methodist Episcopal Church, as well as Pentecostal denominations. And so mm -hmm. our Lutheran heritage, especially in the ELCA here in the United States, um, very heavily focuses on the importance of um, ecumenical relations and becoming close neighbors and loving neighbors with our fellow Christians. Mm -hmm. And then tying that back into uh, to Andre, that's one thing he tried doing with the Lutherans is he sought unity with one another. He saw these um, flockiest and Melanchthonites um, arguing, um, arguing with one another and he and Chenlis were like, no, let's, let's put an end to this. We're, we're Lutheran. We come from a common heritage. What do we actually believe? So, so Chenlis and Andre were collaborators. Um, They're some of the chief architects of the Formula of Concord. Um, <laughs> and so kind of going to Martin Chenlis now, he's jokingly referred to as the other Martin. Since Martin Luther passed in 1946, there was another one who came and took his place. Um, he was born in Bradenburg, and he studied at the University of Magdeburg, Frankfurt, Wittenberg, and Koingsberg. So he got a lot of education. Um, 
he studied, and I found this interesting, he studied astrology, in which at that time it was, it was considered a science. Um, and he studied that alongside theology. Um, he joined the University faculty of Witt joined University of Wittenberg faculty in 1554, and uh, he was originally a Philippist, um, but he began to see the need for compromise. Um, one thing I forgot to mention in my historical background: um, in 1540, uh, Philip Melanchthon actually updated the Augsburg Confession. So um, originally there were 21 articles. Um, but as a way of compromise, and Melanchthon had the right to do that, the Augsburg Confession was his work. He, he added six more articles, 22 to 28, and that's considered by some to be the altered Augsburg Confession, also known as the Variata. There, Melanchthon was actually trying to play peacemakers between the Roman Catholics, the Evangelicals, and the Reformed. He was trying to play peacemaker. Um, if somebody were to give uh, Phil Melanchthon a Enneagram type, he would most likely be the peacemaker because um, that's what he did. Um, however, mo traditionally mo most Lutheran bodies adhere to the unaltered Augsburg Confession, which is Articles 1 to 21. Um, but back to Chemnitz, uh, one of his main goals, along with Jake, Jacobus Andre, was them working together on what do Lutherans believe. So the formula of Concord started in around the, the formation around 1577. And most of the articles were actually in response to all these controversies that blew up the crypto-Calvinist about the real presence in the Lord's Supper, um, the mayoristic saying that good works are necessary, Syner the synergist controversy saying humanity's will is not totally corrupt. Therefore, we can cooperate with God. Um, but most of the articles found in the form of Concord are what Lutherans teach as a result of these controversies. Um, and that's kind of the interesting, interesting thing about creeds and confessions is it comes out of controversy. Compromises come out of controversy. Um, and this, uh, this, so the formula of Concord actually transitions into another period of history, which will be revisited at a later episode, but it's the beginning of Lutheran orthodoxy also known as Lutheran scholasticism. Which um, we will very much look forward to you joining us then. Um, until then, if we highly recommend that you begin, you know, looking at the formula of Concord, both the epitome and the solid declaration. If you don't have one, I'm sure a local Lutheran pastor would be happy to help you. Um, you can also find them online. Um, they are public domain. So I, I highly recommend um, searching for those and reading through at least parts of them because those are really the foundation of Lutheran theology um, around the world. And so um, this heritage from the Reformation is still ongoing today, and I think that it'd be very beneficial to learn about it. Mm -hmm. Until next time, I'm Jaron. And I'm Thomas, and thank you for joining us for Seminary and Table Talk. We'll see you next week. <laughs>